Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Hope of History, From a Garden to a City, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 18, 2007. To celebrate the occasion of its 150th anniversary, the current issue of the Atlantic Monthly invited an eclectic mix of scholars, novelists, politicians, artists, and others to write 300-word essays on what they called the future of the American idea. The zealous atheist Sam Harris, author of The End of Faith, 2004, and Letter to a Christian Nation, 2006, used his opportunity to deride Christians for their so-called abject superstition of believing that, quote, Jesus will return someday and orchestrate the end of the world with his magic powers, end quote. Sam Harris's sarcasm notwithstanding, the end of human history is a brutal certitude, not a Christian platitude. And it causes most thoughtful people to wonder, what then? I can think of four scenarios. If you're a male in Liberia, your life expectancy at birth is 39 years. If you're lucky enough to be born a woman in Japan, demographers estimate that you'll live more than twice that long, almost 85 years. But no matter who you are or where you're born, mortality rates are still 100%. Then comes your personal end. Either personal annihilation and absolute nothingness, or magic power of some sort, to use Sam Harris's word. Almost every people and culture of every time and place have believed the latter. Archaeological ruins, like the huge and haunting Moai statues on Easter Island in the South Pacific, or the Incan architecture of the lost city of Machu Picchu, remind us that entire cultures have collapsed. And so, environmental experts like Jared Diamond speak of civilizational or cultural death. His case studies show how some of history's most advanced civilizations have vanished. Without major course corrections, many social scientific studies predict apocalyptic scenarios due to nuclear weapons, global warming, population growth in the places that can least sustain it, overconsumption of limited fossil fuels, massive economic inequalities, large-scale displacements of populations, famines, and wars. And so a second scenario is civilizational end, and it has, as Jared Diamond shows us, numerous precedents. The end of the earth is a given. It will just take a while. My friend and solar physicist Charles says that in about five billion years, the sun will expand into a red giant, ten million times its present volume. 
at which far-flung time it will incinerate and eventually swallow planet Earth. If the Sun is already about 4.6 billion years old, as many scientists estimate, we're about halfway to the end of the Earth. But it will come. As hard as it is to fathom a Milky Way with no planet Earth, that's nothing, astronomically speaking, compared to the cosmic end of the universe as we know it. Physicists are divided, but equally bleak. If the expansion of the Big Bang continues to propel everything outward, our galaxies will fly apart forever, although individual galaxies will collapse into black holes. But if the forces of gravity prevail, the expanding universe will eventually reverse its expansion and collapse into what physicists like to call a big crunch. It's as sure as can be, writes the particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, that humanity and all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos. So, we all face inevitable ends, personal, civilizational, global, and cosmic. But then what? What comes after the end? No one knows, or even can know. Any position you take constitutes an act of faith, whether you're a Christian or Sam Harris. In his review of The God Delusion by the Oxford atheist Richard Dawkins, Jim Holt thus, observe, thus observes that short of a miraculous occurrence, the only thing that might resolve the matter is an experience beyond the grave, what theologians used to call, quote, eschatological verification, end quote. If the after-death options are either a beatific vision of God or oblivion and no God, then it's poignant to consider that believers will never discover that they are wrong, whereas Dawkins and fellow atheists will never discover that they are right. Christians propose a fifth alternative, so-called eschatology. Christian eschatology, from the Greek eschaton, meaning last things, believes that humanity's earthly end is not the ultimate end. The God who created the world will consummate its redemption. What began in the Garden of Eden will end in the city of Jerusalem. This hope is broadly and deeply embedded in the Hebrew prophets. Isaiah's prophetic poetry this week imagines that God will create new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah 65, 17. As one might expect from a prophet of his time and place, Isaiah pictures this as an urban renewal of Jerusalem. Centuries later, the first Christians, all of whom were Jewish, pictured the new heaven and the new earth as a new Jerusalem, quote, 
coming down out of heaven, end quote. Revelation 21, 1-4. Isaiah also envisions universal environmental wholeness in the famous phrase, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Isaiah 65, 25. With the explicit literary similarity to Genesis 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, Isaiah chapter 65, 17 bookends human history. What started in an idyllic garden culminates in an urban renewal. Jesus also speaks of the Christian hope of cosmic renewal in this week's lectionary. He describes redemption drawing near for the whole earth in Luke 21, verses 28 and 35. So too the Apostle Paul. In light of the future cosmic redemption, he says, we should engage the world rather than idle away the days and withdraw from it. Apparently, some Thessalonians had quit their jobs and stopped working because of their belief that the return of Christ was imminent. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13 And so, following the Hebrew prophets, Jesus, and Paul, Christians have confessed this blessed hope, Titus 2.13, down through the centuries. In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, every Sunday we confessed the Apostles' Creed from the 3rd or 4th century, one line of which reads, From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Every once in a while we confess with the Nicene Creed from the year 325 that Jesus shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And similarly, in the Lord's Prayer, we prayed that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. This hope for an ultimate cosmic correction is not only a Christian hope, although it certainly is that. I think it's an innately human hope rooted in our sense of and longing for a future and final justice. Justice for every Kurd who was gassed by Saddam Hussein. For every girl in Darfur who was gang-raped by Janjaweed militia. And for every homeless person who wanders America's streets. I think this is why Psalm 98 for this week summons not only all the earth, 98 verses 3 and 4, but all creation, 98, 7 and 8, to celebrate the expected expectation of divine judgment. Many people think of divine judgment in negative terms, but Psalm 98 rejoices in divine judgment, for at long last, quote, God will judge the world in righteousness in the peoples with equity. Psalm 98, verse 9. That will be a good day, not a bad day. How will all this happen? I have no idea. We needn't know the details of the last days described by Isaiah, Jesus, or Paul. I like C.S. Lewis's analogy of actors in a very real drama. We don't know everything about the play. 
whether we're in the first act or the last act, or even which characters play the minor and major roles. In our ignorance, we really have no idea when the end of the play ought to come. But the plot will find fulfillment, even if our limited understanding right now obscures it. Perhaps the author will fill us in after it's over. But for now, says C.S. Lewis, quote, playing it well is what matters infinitely, end quote. And now for further reflection. The Left Behind novels, which have sold over 65 million copies, are not good theology, and they're certainly not good literature. They're full of what one critic has called voyeuristic violence. Nevertheless, what might they tell us about the deepest longings of ordinary people? Number two. Watch the film Blade Runner from the year 1982, which envisions a very dark future for humanity in a dystopic Los Angeles in the year 2019. What might Blade Runner tell us about future human scenarios? And finally, two books for further reflection. First, Alistair McGrath, A Brief History of Heaven, from the year 2003, in C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. For books this week, I review Madeline Levine, The Price of Privilege, How Parental Pressure and Material Advantage Are Creating a Generation of Disconnected and Unhappy Kids. New York, HarperCollins, 2006, 246 pages. Madeline Levine knows the afflictions of affluence. Although she was raised in a blue-collar setting, and her family even lived on state assistance for a while, for 30 years she's lived in Marin County, California, just across the Golden Gate Bridge where she's raised a family of five and practiced as a clinical psychologist. In addition to her personal experiences as a mother and a clinician, her book includes the findings of social scientific studies, cultural analyses, and the insights of her colleagues to explore what she calls the paradox of privilege. Why are there so many kids whose problems seem out of proportion to their circumstances? Why do her adolescent patients have some of the highest rates of dysfunctional behaviors, including addictions, eating disorders, cutting, burning, depression, insomnia, boredom, substance abuse, and anxiety? Why have adolescent suicides quadrupled since 1950? Levine encourages us to take an unflinching look at our parenting skills. There she finds two contributing factors. First, achievement, pre achievement pressure, and second, maladaptive perfectionism that make kids feel like parental love depends upon performance.
Kids also feel isolated from their parents, even those overweening parents who, out of their own neediness, are not simply involved in the lives of their kids, but downright intrusive. Levine teases out the distinctions between support and micromanagement, wholesome encouragement and overbearing pressure. She also spends considerable time deconstructing the more toxic elements of affluent cultures, encouraging parents to resist the status quo of overwrought competition, perfectionism, and materialism. All parents have limited abilities, skills, and opportunities, not to mention their own family of origin baggage. Children are all different and unpredictable, so there's no one-size-fits-all set of techniques that guarantees success. Levine is empathetic and realistic. She never makes you feel like parenting, parenting requires sainthood. I especially appreciated the several times she shared her own family failures and successes. She repeatedly returns to the special influence of mothers on their children, along with their unique challenges, including her entire last chapter. I'm sure that many of the problems she describes exist not merely in affluent communities, but most everywhere. The wisdom she offers in this book will help any parent, no matter where they live. Madeline Levine, The Price of Privilege For film this week, I review a short 41-minute film, IMAX, Blue Planet, from the year 1990. Filmed in IMAX by Nassau astronauts 200 miles above planet Earth, this short film introduces you to volcanoes and earthquakes, underwater lava chimneys and Amazon rainforests. The narration begins with an Earth rise as viewed from the moon, and in a later shot we observe from space a thin blue line, above which is an uninhabitable black space and below which is our cocoon-like layer of thin air that is our atmosphere. If there's a theme that integrates these remarkable images, it is the delicate balance between earth, air, and water, and, especially poignant, the impact that humanity has had on our tiny blue planet. This film will seem outdated with the new Planet Earth series produced by the BBC in 2006 and shown on the Discovery Channel, but it's still very well worth watching and would make for a great evening of family fun. IMAX, Blue Planet, from the year 1990. And finally, for poetry, with Advent and Christmas just around the corner, we've posted Nativity by John Donne. Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent weak enough now into the world to come.
But, oh, for thee, for him, hath the inn no room? Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe. John Dunn, Nativity Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 18th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.